This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents William Faulkner, who reads from his story, The Old Man, set, like much of his work, in Mississippi along the river. The skiff going on, driving on with nothing else but trees and water and solitude until after a while it no longer seemed to him that he was trying to put space and distance behind him or shorten space and distance ahead, but that both he and the wave were now hanging suspended, simultaneous and unprogressing in pure time upon a dreamy desolation in which he paddled on, not from any hope even to reach anything at all, but merely to keep intact quite a little of distance the length of the skiff divided between himself and the inert and inescapable mass of female meat before him. Then night, and the skiff rushing on, fast, since any speed over anything unknown and invisible is too fast, with nothing before him and behind him, the outrageous ideal volume of moving water toppling forward, its crest frothed and shredded like fangs, and then dawn again, another of those dreamlike alterations, day to dark and back to day again, with that quality truncated, anachronic and unreal, as the waxing and waning of light in a theater scene. The skiff emerging now with the woman no longer supine beneath the shrunken, soaked private's coat was sitting bolt upright, gripping the gunwale with both hands, her eyes closed and her lower lip caught between her teeth, and he driving the splintered board furiously now, glaring at her out of his wild, swollen, sleepless face and crying, croaking, hold on, for God's sake, hold on. I'm trying to, she said, but hurry, hurry. He told it, the unbelievable, hurry, hasten, the man falling from a cliff being told to catch on to something and save himself. The very telling of it emerging shadowy and burlesque, ludicrous, comic and mad, from the age of unbearable forgetting, with a quality more dreamily furious than any stable behind proscenium lights. He was in a basin now. A basin, the plump convict said. That's what you wash in. All right, the tall one said harshly above his hands. I did. With a supreme effort, he stilled them long enough to release the two bits of cigarette paper and watch them waft in light, fluttering indecision to the floor between his feet holding his hand motionless even for a moment longer, a basin, a broad, peaceful yellow sea which had abruptly and curiously altered air, giving him, even at that moment, the impression that it was accustomed to water, even if not total submersion. He even remembered the name of it, told to him two or three weeks later by someone, a chaffalau. Louisiana, the plump convict said, you mean you were clean out of Mississippi? Hell far. He stared at the tall one. Shucks, he said. That ain't but just across from Vicksburg. They never named any Vicksburg across from where I was, the tall one said. It was Baton Rouge they named it. And now he began to talk about town, a little neat white portrait town nestling among enormous, very green trees, appearing suddenly in the telling as it probably appeared in actuality, abrupt and airy and mirage-like, and incredibly serene before him behind a scattering of boats and wood to a line of freight cars, standing flush to the doors and water. And now he tried to tell that too, how he stood waist deep in water for a moment, looking back and down at the skiff in which the woman half lay, her eyes still closed, her knuckles white on the gunwales, and a tiny thread of blood creeping down her chin from her chewed lip, and he looking down at her in a kind of furious desperation. How far will I have to walk, she said. I don't know, I tell you, he cried, but it's land somewhere yonder. It's land, houses. If I try to move, it won't even be born inside a boat, she said. You'd have to get closer. Yes, he cried, wise, desperate, incredulous. Wait, I'll go and surrender, and then they will have. He didn't finish. Wait to finish. He told that too. Himself splashing, stumbling, trying to run, sobbing and grasping. Now he saw it. 
another loading platform, and standing above the yellow flood, the khaki figures on it, the four, identical, the same. He said how the intervening days since that first innocent morning telescope vanished, as if they had never been the two contiguous succeeding instants succeeding simultaneously. Had he transported across no intervening stage, but merely turned in his own footsteps, plunging, splashing, his arms raised, croaking harshly, he heard the startled shout. There's one of them, the command, the clash of equipment, the alarm cry. There he goes, there he goes. Yes, he cried, running, plunging. Here I am, here, here, running on into the first scattered volley, stopping among the bullets, waving his arms, shrieking, I want to surrender, I want to surrender. Watching not in terror but in amazement and absolutely unbearable outrage as a squatting clump of the khaki figures parted and he saw the machine gun. The blunt stick muzzle slant and drop and probe toward him and he's still screaming in his hoarse, closed voice, I want to surrender. Can't you hear me? Continuing to scream even as he whirled and plunged, splashing, ducking, went completely under and heard the bullets going suck, 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 suck on the water above him. And he scrabbing still on the bottom, still trying to scream even before he regained his feet, and still all submerged save his plunging, unmistakable buttocks, the outraged screaming bubbling from his mouth and about his face since he merely wanted to surrender. Then he was comparatively screamed, out of range, though not for long, that is, he didn't tell how far or where. There was a moment in which he paused, breathed for a second before running again. The course back to the skiff opened for the time being, though he could still hear the shouts behind him, and now and then a shot. And he panting, sobbing, a long savage tear in the flesh of one hand, got when and how he did not know. And he wasting precious breath, speaking to no one now, any more than the scream of the dying rabbit addressed to any mortal ear, but rather an indictment of all breath and its folly and suffering, its infinite capacity for folly and pain, which seems to be its only immortality. All in the world I want is just to surrender. He returned to the skiff and got in and took up his splintered plank. And now when he told this, despite the fury of element which climaxed it, it, the telling, became quite simple. He now even creased another cigarette paper between his fingers which did not tremble at all and filled the paper from the tobacco sack without spilling a flake as though he had passed from the machine gun's barrage into a bourne beyond any more amazement so that the subsequent part of his narrative seemed to reach his listeners as though from beyond a sheet of slightly milky though still transparent glass, as something not heard but seen, a series of shadows, edgeless yet distinct, and smooth the flowing, logical and unfrantic, making no sound. They were in the skiff, in the center of the broad, placid trough which had no boundaries, and down which the tiny forlorn skiff flew to the irresistible coercion of a current going once more he knew not where. The neat, small, live oak bowered towns, unattainable and mirage-like, and apparently attached to nothing upon the airy and unchanging horizon. He did not believe them. They did not matter. He was doomed. They were less than figments of smoke or delirium, and he was driving his unceasing paddle without destination or even hope now, looking now and then at the woman sitting with her knees drawn up and locked, and her entire body one terrific clinch while the threads of bloody saliva crept from her teeth clenched lower lip. He was going nowhere and fleeing from nothing. He merely continued to paddle because he had paddled so long now that he believed if he stopped his muscle would scream in agony. So when it happened he was not surprised. He heard the sound which he knew well. He had heard it but once before, true enough, but no man need hear it but once. And he had been expecting it. He looked back, still driving the paddle, and saw it curve, crested with its straw-like flotsam of trees and debris and dead beasts 
and he glared over his shoulder as for a full minute out of that attenuation far beyond the point of outragement by even suffering. The capability of being further affronted had ceased, from which he now contemplated with savage and invulnerable curiosity the further extent to which his now anesthetized nerves could bear, what next could be invented for them to bear, until the wave actually began to rear over his head in its thundering climax. Then only did he turn his head. His stroke did not falter, it neither slowed nor increased. Still paddling with a spent hypnotic steadiness, he saw the swimming deer. He did not know what it was, nor that he had altered the skiff's course to follow it. He just watched the swimming head before him as the wave boiled down and the skiff rose bodily in the old familiar fashion on a wealth of tossing trees and houses and bridges and fences. He's still paddling even while the paddle found no purchase save air, and still paddling even as he and the deer shot forward side by side at arm's length. He watching the deer now, watching the deer begin to rise out of the water bodily until it was actually running along the surface, still rising, soaring clear of the water altogether, vanishing upward in a dying crescendo of splashings and snapping branches, its damp scut flashing upward, the entire animal vanishing upward as smoke vanishes. And now the skiff struck and cast as he was out of it too, standing knee-deep, springing out and falling to his knees, scrabbing up, glaring after the vanished deer. Land, he croaked, land, hold on, just hold on. He caught the woman beneath the arms, dragging her out of the boat, plunging and panting after the vanished deer. Now earth actually appeared, and the is smooth and swift and steep, bizarre, solid and unbelievable, an Indian mound. And he plunging at the muddy slope, slipping back, the woman struggling in his muddy hands. Let me down, she cried, let me down. But he held her, panting, sobbing, and rushed again at the muddy slope. He had almost reached the third crest with his now violently unmanageable burden when a stick under his foot gathered itself with a thick convulsive speed. It was a snake, he thought, as his feet spread beneath him and with the indubitable last of his strength he half pushed and half flung the woman up the bank as he shot feet first and face down back into that medium upon which he had lived for more days and nights than he could remember and from which he himself had never completely emerged as if his own failed and spent flesh were attempting to carry out his furious, unflagging will for severance at any price, even that of drowning, from the burden with which, unwitting and without choice, he had been doomed. Later it seemed to him that he had carried back beneath the surface with him the sound of the infant's first mewing cry. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of Harper Collins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet.